Hi, dance friends. This past week, dancer Alison Stroming was asked what music she's been listening to, and she called out one musician in particular, saying the following. I think it's really cool that she was just a dance convention kid going to stuff like Break the Floor, and now she's a pop superstar. So which pop superstar is Alison talking about? The answer at the end of this episode of the Dance Edit podcast. everyone, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We're editors at Dance Magazine and Dance Spirit Magazine. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing dance organizations' creative reimaginings of canceled performances or even whole seasons, um, thinking about what the post-pandemic dance world might look like, and hearing from Broadway veteran and COVID-19 survivor Paloma Garcia-Lee. But before we dive in, we have a request for you all, actually. We want you to talk to us. Um, First, of course, we'd love for you to like and review and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And we're also hoping you'll connect with us on Instagram and or Twitter or both uh, to give us your suggestions for topics of conversation. Drop us a line. Tell us, what do you want to hear a bunch of nerdy dance journalists get into? And if you let us know, you just might hear that subject discussed on a future episode. In case you haven't given us a follow yet, we are at dance underscore edit on Twitter and at the.dance.edit on Instagram. We really want this to be a a two-way conversation because we love hearing from all of you passionate people and you're definitely passionate. Um, Okay, so now on to our first segment. So after taking a beat to kind of regroup, um, some dance organizations are beginning to unveil innovative virtual versions of previously canceled performances, or in some cases, even entire canceled seasons. So probably the most notable example here is New York City Ballet, which is mounting a six-week digital spring season right now, it's happening right now, in place of its usual spring season at Lincoln Center. And I really like the way they've structured this digital season. Um, Jonathan Stafford recently said to the New York Times that they wanted to carefully curate it and not just have it feel thrown together. Um, Work by Balanchine and Robbins will be shown on Tuesdays. Fridays will uh, feature ballets by contemporary choreographers, including Ratmansky, Pam Tanowitz, Kyle Abraham. Um, And I'm also really looking forward to the classes. Wendy Whalen will be teaching ballet-inspired movement classes every Wednesday. And there will be online movement workshops called uh, Ballet Essentials. Um, It feels like they're kind of capturing the essence of the typical New York City ballet spring season, which for us as New York City-based dance writers, it's such a touchstone for us. And it's such like a typical thing in our lives and our routines. But I'm also thinking about when I was a teenager in Louisiana and being a huge Balanchine fan, but also never being able to find footage online and, you know, like, if something would turn up, we would pour over every second of it until it got taken down. And so the fact that like these ballets that are so rarely seen um, in any digital format whatsoever because of uh, the Balanchine and Robbins Trust keeps such a tight grip on them, the fact that these are now going to be available to people everywhere, even if it's only for a brief period of time, is absolutely incredible. Like my teenage self is freaking out right now. Um. I think it's going to be fun to actually take these classes, too. My daughter's going to try their their classes for kids on Saturdays. They're doing kid-friendly workshops. Just a chance for sort of everyone to get involved. 
And City Ballet isn't alone in this practice of, you know, creating virtual versions of, of previously canceled events. So New York City's annual dance parade has actually moved online. It's becoming this global Zoom event. They're calling it a festival in place. The um, Dance Without and- Borders virtual parade. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like kind of a lovely idea. Uh, for the dance parade, one thing I'm looking forward to about that is Princess Lockeroo will be interviewing some of the original Soul Train dancers. Um, <gasps> I didn't know that. Yes, very exciting. And then Youth America Grand Prix, the ballet competition, actually streamed its 20th anniversary final round last week on Facebook Live after it was forced to cancel its its New York City finals. Kind of an interesting model there. Um, I guess, you know, we've said this before about other types of online dance options that have appeared during the pandemic, but while we've definitely lost a lot, it does seem like we're gaining something real from the the greater inclusivity of these digital replacements for live events. Mm. It's kind of an interesting development. So in our next segment, we wanted to discuss three different stories that ask us either explicitly or implicitly to consider what the dance world will look like once we're on the other side of this pandemic. Um, So first, we want to look at an interview that shows just how long and windy the path to that future will likely be. Um, Charlotte Martin, the president of the Broadway League, spoke very candidly to Deadline about when Broadway theaters might realistically reopen and what that process might involve. Yeah, so I would definitely recommend uh, looking up this full interview. It's quite extensive. It's bracing for sure. Um, Uh, But she was very honest about what the current situation is. Um, Right now, earliest estimates for a Broadway reopening are September. And also she made the point that they're guessing it's going to take whatever that reopen date, that go-ahead date is, it's going to be six weeks after that at earliest that any shows can get back on stage because no matter how many at-home classes or workouts these performers are doing, it's going to take time to get show ready. And that's assuming that entire cast and crews are still available and will be able to get be gotten back together. Um, there's also a really valid point, you know, economically, it takes a lot to put on a Broadway show. And she made, she pointed out that there's a very real possibility that we're going to be facing a second wave of this virus come winter. And the question is, can shows afford to invest in reopening if they're facing the possibility that they may have to shut down yet again in a matter of weeks? Um, it's a lot of variables up in the air right now. It just seems like there are a lot of questions that remain here. Like even when, you know, once things are back up and running, what precautions will still need to be taken at that point? What will the shows themselves look like? What about, I mean, tours? How is that going to (sighs) work? Tours are such an open question right now. Um, One thing I found kind of comforting, though, was that she did say, like, it's kind of too early to be doing audience surveys about when people will become comfortable going back to the theater. And I know we've, on this podcast, talked about some early surveys that were rather dire. And she makes a good point that, like, we're in the middle of the apex right now. It's not a good time to be asking people that question. So... Clearly, once we do reach a point where the dance world is you know, starting to resume its usual activities again, the world will be and feel totally different. And that's kind of scary, but it also presents an opportunity. Um, so Dance Magazine last week asked 10 industry leaders about how they'd reimagine the dance world post-coronavirus, what they'd like to see happen so that ultimately we'll, we're rebuilding our community on a, a stronger foundation. 
So many gems in this, first of all. One interesting thing to me uh, was that Sydney Sky better mentioned TikTok as a place where exceptional choreographic work is happening. Um, because often when people talk about dance on TikTok, it's with regard to really popular dance challenges, um, which is an important form of choreography in a sense too. But TikTok can be a platform for dance and choreography with more complexity. Um, but somewhat similarly, I'm wondering whether this shift toward dancers making more digital content will lead to an expanded uh, an expanded idea of who gets to be considered a serious dancer. Um, because before, people who primarily made dance uh, for digital consumption were considered dance influencers, and the larger dance world, especially within the concert dance world, kind of put them into a separate category from traditional dancers. I personally would love to give Alice Shepard another Bessie Award uh, for her response to this question alone. Uh, brief quote, uh, she begins, I don't know if there should be a return to normal. I have tried not to not think about going back or returning or normal. I believe that we can't go back right now. The world is all about disability, even if you don't name it as such. And she goes on to talk about how this situation is really throwing into sharp relief issues that the disability justice community have been talking about. Accessibility has now become a problem that directly impacts non-disabled folks too, and maybe this is the wake-up call people need to do the work we already should have been doing. As a field, we need to remember this moment and restructure accordingly on the other side. Absolutely. And I also love this quote um, by Indira Goodwine. We need to create new spaces that give artists the opportunity to thrive on their own terms and have agency and not have to conform to a system. Mm-hmm. Also, Miguel Gutierrez and Emily Johnson made great points about the economic and political issues that are really at play here. And Miguel was saying, like, this is a political issue. The precarity of our field is starker than ever. Yes. And how we need to think about how we're aligned with other cultural workers. Please go read the full piece if you haven't yet. It's just so many, so many quotable quotes in there. So many great bigger picture ideas. Um, so as as Sydney Skybetter mentioned in that Dance Magazine story, this reimagining hopefully will capitalize on the new energy around digital dance content right now. It seems like it's becoming increasingly vital and central to the dance world. But you know, as as Lydia was saying, not only have we kind of undervalued influencers. The digital sphere until now has been really lax about crediting its creators. And that leads us into the next forward-looking story we wanted to discuss this episode, which digs into how and why we should recognize the artists behind dance that's made for the internet. Um, so Teen Vogue interviewed Jelia Harmon, the 14-year-old who created the massively popular renegade dance on TikTok, but who until recently received no credit for doing so. Yes. Um, I just want to point out that even though we've seen dance creators of various backgrounds experience difficulty getting credit, um, Backpack Kids 2018 lawsuit against Fortnite comes to mind. Um, it's critical to point out that Jaliah Harmon's story is part of a longer history of Black creators having their work distributed to the masses while receiving too little or no credit or compensation. Um, and unfortunately, many of those artists never saw the success that Jaliah is currently having. Um, there's a really great quote from that uh, Teen Vogue piece um, by Jaliah's mom. She said, there are tons of others who have also done things that were really big and they never got this. People are tired of being underdogs and not being recognized. So I, I'm personally overjoyed every time I see Jaliah succeeding. But um, there are also, this also points to a, another issue of just the difficulty of crediting creators in the dance, um, the digital dance space. 
Well, and the question of who owns a dance really goes back a long ways and has been thrown into sharp relief over the past couple of years. I mean, choreography is, technically speaking, copyrightable in the United States. Uh, but as became clear uh, with first, you know, Fortnite and those lawsuits, and now with TikTok, um, those rules were written in an extremely different world, one where the dissemination of dance works was far more limited. There's no legal blueprint that really takes into account how rapidly and widely a dance can spread and change once social media steps into the picture. Yeah. I, this confusion around who owns a viral dance, this this sort of need to credit the people who are creating these dances, especially if they are people of color, if they are people who are have historically been underrepresented and undercredited in the dance world, it's only becoming a more urgent question as our dance world becomes more and more digitally oriented. So hopefully this sparks conversation in the beginnings of uh, beginnings of change. So next up, we have the second installment in our social disdancing, that's D-I-S-D-A-N-C-I-N-G, still not sorry, series. Still shaking my head. Um, <laughs> so in this series, we're asking artists from different corners of the dance world to leave us voice memos just describing how they're coping with life right now. And this week, we have Paloma Garcia-Lee, who's a, a gifted film and TV and musical theater dancer who, until the theater's close, was performing in Moulin Rouge on Broadway. And Paloma has an especially valuable perspective to share here because she's actually a survivor of COVID-19. So here she is. Hi there, Dance Edit listeners. This is Paloma Garcia-Lee. I am currently a cast member in Moulin Rouge, the musical on Broadway. Uh, you can also see me in Fosse Verdon on FX and as Graziella in Steven Spielberg's upcoming West Side Story. So we are in crazy times right now. The pandemic, this coronavirus pandemic really started to hit home when all the Broadway shows started closing. And I actually was um, very sick uh, when all of that was happening. And I was, you know, I tested positive for coronavirus when there was only, you know, 400 cases in New York State. So you know, I hadn't been feeling well for a little while, but we would have never guessed it was something like this. That day, you know, that all the shows shut down, and that was the same day I went and got tested and tested positive for the virus, actually, was a really crazy day, really scary, a lot of unknowns. You know, at first I was just dealing with my own health. I was sick, you know, and I had been sick a few weeks prior, and I was having this resurgence of symptoms, body aches, shortness of breath, um, just crazy fatigue, so tired. I was sleeping like 18 hours a day and the breathing issues were really crazy. So honestly, my reaction was fear for my health. A lot of people were contacting me, especially once they found out that I had tested positive. I was really scared for people to know because I, you know, people were texting me being like, well, I saw you two weeks ago. Were you sick? Am I now at risk because I saw you or just such an influx of questions that I wasn't able to answer. And you know, while I was sick. So I was like, I'm really sorry, you know, please contact your doctor. I'm not sure what's best. I'm really just trying to take care of myself. And once my health was in order and once I was feeling better, there was such an immense rush of gratitude. And I just felt so lucky to be feeling better that I never had to go to the hospital, that I could ride out my symptoms at home. And I'm really in tune with my body, you know, as a dancer, yeah, many of you listening to this are dancers. And there's just something, you know, people were asking me, like, how did you know, you know, you should get tested for this? Or what were your inklings? And, you know, this was a sickness like I had never had reminiscent of the flu for sure. But I just knew something was up. 
you know, I think I just had those kind of spidey senses with myself that I knew it was different. And I knew once they started, you know, there was the usher from a different theater who tested positive. And then all of a sudden I said to my dressing roommate, I was like, you know, I think I've got this thing. <laughs> we we're kind of laughing about it at the time, you know, obviously no laughing matter at all now. But I was just, I just had an inkling that this is what I was dealing with because it was just so strange. Um, I still have friends in the hospital fighting for their life right now. So I'm just so grateful to be healthy and home. And uh, I know so many people affected by this virus. So much of my cast was affected by it. You know, over a dozen, well over a dozen of us within that building um, have had all different forms of it from tested positive and asymptomatic to in the hospital on a ventilator. So, you know, following closely Nick Cordero's case right now and his beautiful wife, Amanda Klutz. And, you know, it's just really scary. It's scary what's happening and losing so many people. I sadly lost one of my dressers at Phantom uh, to this virus. And it's really, really a wild time in the world. And I think we're all being affected. You know, for myself, I felt a, a huge shedding of, you know, wh who is Paloma the human when you remove the badges of Paloma the Broadway performer, Paloma the actress, Paloma this, that, the other. Um, I feel very purely myself right now. You know, my social distancing days are, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say lovely. They're lovely. You know, I maybe will take a dance class. Uh, I'm also volunteering um, at a horse stable right now. I, as soon as I was better and knew that I was no longer contagious, uh, something that was really important to me was helping during this time and being a good citizen. And I realized that um, animal shelters and the horse stable and barn, um, you know, would probably be needing help during this time. Paloma, the farm girl, very few people have met her. Um, you know, I go on long walks in the park with my dog and catch up with family and friends on FaceTime or over the phone and cook great meals. And I've always wanted to play the mandolin. So I just bought myself a mandolin and I am learning how to play that at home. My body has just needed time to repair itself. So what an opportunity. Like I'm, I'm giving myself the opportunity to repair and refresh and not stress about, you know, being a thoroughbred ready for the racetrack tomorrow. You know, there's so many questions. And if I let my brain go to, well, how long will this last? And oh my gosh, but I had these plans, right? Well, I was going to do this and I had this schedule and we were going to do the Tonys. And then after that, I was going to probably leave the show um, you know, at the end of the summer and move to LA and focus on acting and my plans, my plans, you know, now there's new plans. And I trust the timing of all of this. You know, my mom owns an amazing dance school in Bucks County, Pennsylvania called the Pennsylvania School of the Performing Arts. And, you know, I'm trying to connect with her students a lot right now, because it's important for me to be an added voice that we're all going to be okay. And, you know, in my opinion, and in many others opinion, the most epic art has come out of really troubling and trying times for the world. So I think the art on the other side of this is going to be just incredible. So just knowing that like, you know, we have to release control in these times and just be where we are and be present. And it's okay. It's okay. If it's uncomfortable, it's okay. If it's hard, I really struggle when people say I can't wait to get back to what was, I think we have a better opportunity than that to transform into something newer and better and more beautiful and more aware and more grateful you know, how we're all going to approach performing after this. 
May no one go back to the performer they were. May we all become something truly greater and brighter and more beautiful and more acutely aware of the gift we've been given to be able to perform and be artists. That's where I'm at. I'm really happy to share this with you guys. Thank you for listening and joining me today. Um, Thank you so much, Paloma, for sharing that. And here's hoping we see you back on a Broadway stage sooner rather than later. Um, Make sure that you give Paloma a follow on Instagram at Paloma Garcia Lee to hear all about her upcoming projects, including her star turn as Graziella in the Spielberg West Side Story film, which we're all excited to see. Um, And before we sign off, here is the answer to our quote quiz from the top of the episode. This past week, dancer Alison Stroming was asked what music she's been listening to, and she called out a specific musician, saying, I think it's really cool that she was just a dance convention kid going to stuff like Break the Floor, and now she's a pop superstar. So which pop superstar is Alison talking about? That would be one Billie Eilish. Alison's interview in Dance Magazine is great, um, but I really just didn't want anyone to forget that Billie was a comp kid. There's some great YouTube footage out there if you if you search for it. Is there really? <laughs> I have not looked this up. Like, I could see that, but, like, I just haven't actually looked into this. Huh. I'm intrigued. Goes to YouTube as we get off the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. We'll be back next Thursday for more discussion of all the news that's moving the dance world. Um, Be sure to sign up for the daily Dance Edit email newsletter at thedanceedit.com. And don't forget to send us your suggestions for dance conversation topics. Keep dancing, everyone. Bye. Bye. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.